I'm ready. Are you ready? Yes. Yes. Here we go. Here we go. Bye, Bye baby. Let's try it again. Ready? Go. Bye, Bye baby. You. Happy Halloween. Good times come and good times go and when they do, hold on to these bones and feathers, herbs and stone, words and weather, hearth and home. Hippie witch, hippie Magic with a switch of your mind, so kind and believing. Hippie Witch, season three, my favorite number. Nice. Hi, thanks for joining me for episode 476 of Hippie Witch, Magic for a New Age. My name is Joanna DeVoe, and I am the groovy creatrix behind Kick-Ass Switch, putting the K in magic, and Hippie Witch, the show you are listening to right now. Joanna DeVoe. I feel like I always say, like, Joanna DeVoe. (laughs) If you're new here, you're like, first of all, what was that intro about? Second of all, what in the heck is your name? Joanna DeVoe. With my sidekick, my handsome sidekick, Tanner Golfball, DeVoe. I am the groovy creatrix behind Kick-Ass Switch, putting the K in magic, and Hippie Witch, the show you are listening to right now. I also have a free ebook by that name, Hippie Witch, Peace, Love, and all that good shit, and you can pick up a copy of that at www.joannadevoe.com, where you will also find the show notes for this episode, Hippie Witch number 476, The Magic of Victorians and the Fun of NaNoWriteMo, with Steel Alexandra, there will be links to Steel's YouTube channel and her Twitter. And you're definitely going to run over and check them both out after you hear this interview because Steel is awesome. If you love Victorians, if you love all things Victorian, you're especially going to love this. Also, I'm going to keep plugging my new free ebook. For a very long time, maybe forever, because I love it. It's for biz witches. It's called The Tao of Biz Witchery, 13 Ways Your Online Biz is a Spiritual Practice. There will be a link to that. It's another free ebook. And before I forget to remember, let me remember to talk about forgetting to remember, because that's what I was supposed to be talking about in the last episode which just posted a couple of nights ago, last night, a day ago, not that long ago, 48 hours ago. I'm not sure. Not very long ago. I posted an episode that ended up being about Edgar Allan Poe and Tarot. And there is also an interview in that with Kendra Hesketh, actress, writer, cat servant, Kendra Hesketh. So if you missed it, go back to episode 476, Good Times. But also, (laughs) when I was doing the intro, I said I was going to be talking about forgetting to remember, and then I forgot. Har, har, har. (laughs) 
So this episode is already edited. The interview portion is already edited. And there's some things I want to say before we get to that. So I'm just going to give you sort of like the Cliff Notes version of what I wanted to say about forgetting to remember. This is inspired by one tweet. At the top of October, we are now at the bottom of October. It is the end of October. Happy Halloween and a blessed Samhain to you if you're in the Southern Hemisphere. Happy Beltane. At the top of the month, I, you know, you have these moments. They usually happen to me in the moment. I'm just going about my business and then I have this little moment of insight and I tweet them when I have these moments. So this is a tweet. It just occurred to me one day, but I have really thought about this and meditated on it frequently all October long. So let me tell you what the tweet said. It said, fear is the forgetting. Love is the remembering. Perhaps some deep part of you chooses to forget in order to experience the thrill in remembering who you are. I had that moment of insight. It felt very true. And the longer I sat with it, the truer it felt. And then I kept having demonstrations of this over and over and over again. I was recently talking about fear on a different podcast that I do over on Patreon. And I was talking about how one of the fears that drives me is the fear of not having enough money to take care of my son should I meet an untimely death or whenever I meet my death. I cannot leave my kid, Tanner Golfball DeVoe, behind, worried that he is going to end up in the system. In the system. I had recently heard a statistic about how 97% of people with intellectual disabilities end up living below the poverty line. And this is something I think a lot about. I know a lot of people like this, including my son. And so that is a fear that drives me. And I was kind of contemplating that and talking about like the difference between a shadow fear, like one of those fears that stops you from becoming all that you're meant to be. And then there's other fears that are wise, right? Like don't put your hand on that hot stove or it will burn you. Sometimes you have to learn the hard way. And then speaking of hard, it can be hard to discern the difference between a fear that is just a bunch of nonsense in your head. It's just like a shadow thing that is keeping you from something that you would like to achieve. It's creating self-sabotaging behaviors. That's when I would often say, like in the past, I used to often say, fear is a liar. Because it is in that way, right? But then also it's there for a reason, it's trying to keep you safe, as is the shadow. The shadow is a very protective entity, if you will. It's a part of you. It is you. It's the part of you. It's like a helicopter parent <laughs> that goes way too far in trying to keep you safe. So, you know, I'm checking in with myself a lot about, like, what is the difference for me? And it changes. I have different levels of awareness but I got really caught up in September in a lot of stress and anxiety. Life was coming at me fast, and I was having a hard time handling it all. I was getting very, very overwhelmed, stressed out, 
it was affecting my health, like the way that I felt in my body. That was the great forgetting, I think, that then once I had, I ended up getting a couple days off from all of my duties, all of the responsibilities of my life. And it was delicious. I took a long, hot bath. I took naps. And then I remembered, oh my gosh, I actually love my life. (laughs) I love my business. I love my kid. I love my home. I love all these things. And it was such a joy to remember. But I wouldn't have remembered had had I not forgotten that. And I think there is some sort of breath that happens, like we forget and we remember and we forget and we remember. And this is how we get that saying that absence makes the heart grow fonder. So for example, if you're in a long-term relationship and you're all up in each other's business all the time and one of you goes out of town, you get a chance to miss each other, right? And remember what you loved about each other in the first place. Like you might actually be hating each other's guts before this vacation happens (laughs) over petty, ridiculous things. You've just kind of had too much of each other for too long, and then you're separated for some reason, and then the remembering, bow, chicka, bow, wow, it can be very good. (laughs) So that is what I meant by fear is the forgetting, love is the remembering, and perhaps truly, like maybe our souls, maybe our hearts choose to forget in order to experience the thrill of remembering or that moment when you remember who you are, when you kind of give your power away and that sucks and it doesn't feel good. But then when you finally take your power back or you put up a healthy boundary, it's like, ah, the great remembering, the great remembering. And then speaking of remembering, Memento Mori is one of my favorite I see it as a spiritual principle. It's one of my favorite spiritual principles. It's actually an old Christian thing that somehow has been translated through Stoicism for our modern times and adopted by a lot of witches. I love it. It basically is this. Memento mori is remember that you too shall die. This too shall pass. This life, your life is finite. And it's not a morbid thing. It's a call to live. It's it's a call to remember the preciousness of this moment. And how often throughout your day do you forget about the preciousness of your own life? And it is by remembering your death that you remember the fleeting preciousness of your own life and hopefully... That realization doesn't freak you out, (laughs) but actually inspires you to live, you know, to create the kick-ass life of your dreams. So we touched on that a little bit, this interview with with Steele. But before we get to that, before we get to that, talking about Memento Mori and the Victorians and Nano Rightmo, which is happening like now, probably when you're listening to this, by the time you click on this link, it'll probably be November. I'm guessing, perhaps, or maybe you're listening to it on Halloween because this is officially the Halloween episode. There's something to me that feels very Halloween-y about the Victorians, so I have been saving this interview with Steele to share with you as a little Halloween 
treat. But before we, before, before, before we get to that, let me say the drawing has happened. I have picked a name out of a hat for the winner of Teresa Reed's book, Tarot, No Questions Asked. Thank you to those of you who entered the contest and shared the, the way the contest worked is you're supposed to go over to Twitter and follow my new BizWitch account, which is biz underscore witch, bizwitch on Twitter, and then follow Teresa Reed over on Twitter. She is the tarot lady there and everywhere. And then tell us what tarot card you are currently embodying, like what tarot card feels the most like where you're at in your life right now. And Andrea Kiss at Witch Wife, spelled with two Y's, she said that she is right now the Eight of Pentacles and she is the winner! Yahoo! Yay! Andrea Kiss, come on down. You are the winner of Tarot, No Questions Asked by Teresa Reed. Shoot me an email at joannadevoe at gmail.com or DM me over on Twitter your address, your mailing address, and I will personally mail you this book. I will send it to you media mail, which can be very, very slow, but it will get there eventually. <laughs> I will mail you Tarot, No Questions Asked by Teresa Reed. And I keep saying it like that so y'all will go check out Tarot, No Questions Asked by Teresa Reed. And I also want to thank new patrons. Thank you to every patron who is supporting the show over on Patreon. I appreciate you all. But a special thank you goes out to Rory Kelly, Layla Ormbreck, and Alex Corvin. And if anybody wants to join us over on Patreon, but you're afraid I'm going to say your first and last name out loud live on air, just shoot me an email and be like, please don't say my name. People do that all the time. <laughs> they do it all the time. I can just say your first name or your dog's name, <laughs> or I could just maybe even call you anonymous, whatever you prefer. I like to thank people because this is very personal. It's why my, my son and I are on the beginning of the podcast here being silly. That is something we do actually when he's taking a bath because the sound echoes off the walls and he loves that. <laughs> and I can't even explain Bobby Lou. It started when he was very, very little. His name is Tanner, but somehow he has like a million nicknames like every kid does, I think. Like when you love your kid, the strangest nicknames come Fourth, and somehow Bobby Lou, it must have been a song or something, was a nickname. And then it got shortened to Bob, and he will answer to Bob. And people that don't know us very well will be like, Did you just call him Bob? <laughs> and then I don't even know how to explain that. Yes, I did just call my son Tanner Bob, and he answered to it. But you know, that's that's how love goes. <laughs> That's how it is. And speaking of being all up in each other's business, we are. And uh, so he's having fun getting to be a part of the show this year and do those little intros with me. And some of you seem to enjoy it. So, yeah, it's a personal show. It's a personal business. It's a personal brand. I love to get to know you all personally over on Patreon. So that is why I thank you individually. But again, if you don't want me to, just let me know and I shall not. 
One more thing I want to mention before the episode is, again, kind of circling back on NaNoWriteMo. I know quite a few of you are doing NaNoWriteMo. Steele is doing NaNoWriteMo. She's already made a video for that, like preparing for NaNoWriteMo. And again, I'm going to be linking to her YouTube channel and her Twitter. I actually got to know her through Twitter. And then when her YouTube channel was brand new, I watched one video and I was like, come on my podcast. (laughs) And you'll see why in a minute. To me, this is a treat. I feel like this is my gift to you. I just feel like you're going to love this. You'll have to let me know if that is true, if that is how it was received. But I also am going to link in the show notes to my friend Miranda At some point, Miranda was a patron of the month interview, so you might remember her from that, but she is a writer. She's really into world building, so I just want to give her a shout out because I know she's going to love this episode, and she's the one who, when I first found Steel and was sharing her videos on Twitter... Miranda was the first person to be like, instantly subscribed. Oh my gosh, I love her. (laughs) It was love at first sight for me. And then it was love at first sight for Miranda. And Miranda is doing something really fun for NaNoWriteMo this year. Her specialty, by the way, is I would say sci-fi fantasy starring characters that have disabilities. She's really interested in own voice disability characters like writing from that perspective and writing empowered characters that just happen to have disabilities and in November for NaNoWriteMo she has promised us that she will show up at 3 p.m eastern standard time with a one tweet story instead of doing like write a 50,000 word if you don't know what NaNoWriteMo is it is national novel writing month it is very international it's super famous And most people decide to write a 50,000 plus word novel in a month. It's just to get that shitty first draft out. And people put a lot of pressure on themselves about this. And so Miranda has decided to get creative with it and to do her own kind of punk rock thing. And so that's what she's going to do. So I'm going to link to her over on Twitter. And then I'm also going to link to my friend Phoebe, who I think is also doing NaNoWriteMo, Phoebe Miller of Phoebe Tales. And she, I want to link to her because these are two people, Phoebe and Miranda, that you can connect with if you are witchy and you love books and you too are going to be doing NaNoWriteMo this year in addition to following Steele. Three people, three people on Twitter (laughs) that you can make friends with and connect with. Phoebe is my co-host. She is the book club queen so she is the co-host of all of our book club chats so she has a special place in my heart not just for that reason but also because of that and we just we're we're finishing up reading Silvia Moreno Garcia's book Mexican Gothic and I must mention that now as well because it's Halloween it's Halloween and Mexican Gothic is A little bit spooky. It takes place in, I think, 1950. 1950, and but it feels like one of those old gothic... What would you... Oh, gosh. It feels... I was going to say gothic romance, but it's not a romance. It is romantic, but it's not a love story, if that makes sense. Lots of fog, a spooky old house, 
mushrooms. It's just the perfect spooky read if you're interested in going into the underground for Samhain, perhaps. Definitely check out Mexican Gothic. If you're in the book club, our next chat is on the 7th. That is a Patreon thing. But I also wanted to say something occurred to me when I was thinking about Mexican Gothic being such a perfect read for this time of year, that kind of going into the underground, but having an adventure. I mean, it's fun. It's fiction. I was thinking about NaNoWriteMo and how interesting it is that that starts on November 1st, on Samhain, when the veil is at its thinnest. These brave would-be novelists, some professional novelists, they start, they go deep into this process of starting a new project. And what could feel more underworldly than that? Have you ever tried to write a whole novel? (laughs) Enter the shadows. It's quite the experience. So isn't that interesting timing to anybody who has ever done NaNoWriteMo? I feel like It's interesting. It's interesting that November 1st is the start of it year after year after year. And that just so happens to be Samhain. So, fun stuff. Fun times. Fun times with NaNoWriteMo and the Victorians with Steel Alexandra. This is a really cool interview because Steel is a Victorianist. I didn't even know that being a Victorianist was a thing, but she is writing her dissertation on secret or dual identities in Victorian literature, which is very, very specific and awesome. She talks about genre fiction in this interview from back in the day, the Victorian days, as a comparison with today. And then another interesting comparison she makes is the link between today's modern anxiety, the anxiety we feel as a culture, the doom scrolling that happens. She compares that to the kind of anxiety that the Victorians were experiencing and trying to process. And it was really cool to hear her make that correlation and you know we talk about cat stuff she has a cat we talk about books we talk about writing but mostly we talk about the victorians and there's a little bit of spooky stuff in here because we talk about death seances memento mori and all that I think, witchy good stuff. So without any further ado, here she is, Steele Alexandra. Hi, Steele. Welcome to Hippie Witch. Hi, thanks so much for having me on. Thank you so much for letting me drag you on because it was just kind of random and impulsive that I reached out to you. It was right after you started your YouTube channel. Yes. I mean, I was aware of you on Twitter. You're an excellent tweeter, by the way. I appreciate a good tweeter. Thank you. I was aware of you that way, but, and again, this was kind of random because I don't have a lot of time to watch videos and things like that, but I clicked on it and I was like, oh my gosh, not only do I love her, I know everybody that listens to my show is going to love her. So I just reached (laughs) out and now here we are. Yeah, it's really exciting. I've been following like your work for actually a while. I was following a lot of witchy types and spiritual people a long time before I got on Twitter myself. So, so it's really cool to be on the podcast. Yay. I love how things come full circle like that. Can we, can you tell people why you started a YouTube channel? 
partly I kind of joked in the first video that it's because I'm like completely isolated from everyone because of the pandemic. But I think, I think I'm sort of, I'm coming to the end of a graduate program and I am doing a lot of research alone besides leaving aside the pandemic. Even if there were no pandemic, I'm writing a dissertation. I'm spending an enormous amount of time just by myself reading, which I I like, I'm very introverted. So I definitely like that about the program, but I feel like I discover a lot of like really cool things that don't necessarily, they, they don't have a place in my dissertation. They're just random and cool. I spend a lot of time in the archives, kind of digging around digital archives usually, but I find a lot of things and they're just, they're just funny and weird and they don't belong in like an academic paper, but I really want to share them with someone. And so I wanted to have the opportunity to share just cool things that I was finding online. And then also I feel like I've been following so many artists and kind of witchy people and tarot oriented people and for so long, and I follow so many YouTube channels and And I feel like I finally reached the point where I just really kind of want to be part of the conversation in a way that's not just me lurking, which I've been like lurking for many years. So you have so much to say. Let's tell people what what you what are you studying? What are you about to get your degree in? So I'm an English literature graduate student. I'm in the English literature program. But what I usually call myself, so people have like a better idea of what I'm doing, is I'm a Victorianist. So I work on specifically literature from the Victorian era. I go backwards a little bit sometimes because I also kind of love the 18th century. It's just like kind of a fun, rowdy century. But but I mostly hang out with the Victorians and I'm working specifically, I work on, my dissertation is about characters with secret identities or dual identities or secret names or original identities in Victorian literature. So I work a lot on kind of the popular genre fiction, like fiction that was considered not usually quite as sophisticated as Dickens, usually literature that was a lot of times kind of considered maybe a little bit trashy at the time, you know, or just something that maybe it wasn't really a status symbol to be reading (laughs) in the same way that certain authors would have been. So I just work on popular fiction, Victorian kind of popular fiction and characters who are usually up to no good (laughs) and have secret identities in that fiction. So I'm working on sensation novels right now, especially, and it's mostly been about as fun as I think a dissertation can be. So, (laughs) which is often not fun. (laughs) The subject matter is so fun. And I'm wondering, I know you're a book nerd, I was listening to yeah. all of your videos while I was going about my business this morning. And I'm wondering what your opinion is on popular fiction today and what it's like to read it from the Victorian era. Do you find it, is the language stifling? Is it hard to get through it or does it read really well? What's what's that like? There's so many answers. First, I would say I love genre, I love genre in general. I love genre fiction from any time period. So I really, really love when you're reading like a genre fiction author, whether they're a mystery writer or a horror writer or a romance writer or a young adult author. And you can just tell that they know what they're doing. Like they've just really mastered. Like I love seeing people who are just at the peak of their craft, whatever that is, and who really understand the genre and are doing interesting things with it. So I love genre fiction from all time periods, really. I would say the main difference when I think about genre fiction now, and some genre fiction does run kind of long now, page count wise, but in the Victorian era, genre fiction, it was pretty much all published serially. 
So it would show up in a periodical newspaper, some kind of publication every week or every month, and people would buy the publication to read the latest installment. And so genre fiction from the Victorian era runs so long, like you have 600 and 700 page mysteries where it's just drawn out and it's it makes sense that they were doing it that way because they wanted to it's more like a tv series they're really more like tv series like genre fiction now is a movie and genre fiction then was like a tv series for people who don't know the victorians did not have netflix i know it's hard to imagine (laughs) but they didn't yeah exactly so this was their like this was their I don't know this was something that a lot of them would look forward to every week it was like something they would all read together so it was a really um a really big community deal a lot of these installments and people were always waiting to see what would happen next kind of like we would with Game of Thrones or something so so are you one of these people I feel like all people are these people I don't know I'm one of these people everybody I know is one of these people who romanticize the Victorian era because it's just so strange and intriguing and witchy and dark and beautiful it's all these intriguing it's such a specific time like did you have a fascination with it and that's why you chose this it's complicated because I love the Victorian era. Like every, every other day, I feel like I come up with another reason why I feel like it's just the right era for me to be working on. Um, I would say it's hard for me to romanticize it in the same way that I think sometimes a, a lot of other people do, because a lot of what I work on, I mean, I love what I work on and it's very fun, but sometimes I'm not just looking at novels. I'm kind of going into the newspapers and digging up reports of like real crimes and things that were really going on. And a lot of the work I did before I started this dissertation was actually on foundlings and abandoned children in the 19th century and sort of different social pressures at play there. And so I do feel like you know, the version of the Victorians that I'm getting isn't just necessarily the version that we like to look at the most now. I'm also kind of going into the newspapers and seeing a lot of just the sad things that were happening to people and some of the struggles that they were really living through. And so I wouldn't say, I definitely am not one of those people. I adore them. I could talk about them all day, but I would not, you know, I'd like to go there for a day, look around, but no longer. <laughs> Yeah. Oh my gosh. 100%. Yes. And I think, I think the things that we romanticize about their culture, like Memento Mori is very strange, but intriguing and their interest in spiritualism. Yeah. I think a lot of those were the answer to the pain of their time. It it was how they were processing a lot of suffering. Yeah, I I definitely agree. And I think it's hard now because I've gone so far with them. I feel like sometimes, I feel like I'm always walking around in modern day and seeing things and being like, oh, that's so Victorian. Oh, this is so Victorian. Oh, we're basically all still the Victorians, you know, because I'm just, I'm like seeing everything through a Victorian lens now because I'm so far down this kind of hole of my dissertation. But I will say that one thing that I think resonates a lot, a lot of the work I do, again, centers around kind of the newspapers and how they functioned at the time. And 
a, there was a lot of, as the newspapers exploded and personal advertisements exploded and the post office exploded and all of these ways of communications opened up to the Victorians, they had a kind of a panic or an anxiety that really reminds me a lot of our modern social media stress in a way mm-hmm. where they were sort of being exposed through the newspapers and they had a fixation with like sordid crime and like scandal. They were sort of, there, there was a real sense that they were like very stressed by the outside world in a way, like, just like, I think we talk a lot about boundaries and like, if you're really stressed out at two in the morning, don't go on Twitter, please, (laughs) you know, like make yourself a cup of tea, but like, don't start do, you know, we have like the doom scrolling and everything. And I feel like Victorian actually had a lot of anxieties about industrialization, urbanization, about moving to the city. And they had a lot of anxieties about like the people they were surrounded by and, and the way they were exposed to each other. And I feel like that just reminds me a lot of now when I think about it. Yes, yes. That I was going to ask you about that, but you just went ahead and answered my question before I even asked, because I think that's a unique perspective. I think we get very kind of blinded to the past. We think our time is the only time, and this is as hard as it's ever been, and... I don't know, like politics has never been a gentle, fun, easy ride in America. So there's that. I think the parallels are there also because of these huge leaps in technology and the change that is inevitable and humans resist change. We just do. It scares the crap out of us. (laughs) And so I, I can see I can see the parallels that way. Yep. Yeah, they also had the personal advertisements became a really big deal around the mid-19th century. So people were sort of anonymously advertising for jobs and spouses sometimes. It was like, and they had like a panic that I always think of it as like the, it reminds me of like the Craigslist panic from like a decade ago or something where it's just like, but you don't know who these people are because they were transitioning from letters, which are like handwritten and you can get a lot of information about the sender to just printed advertisements and you know nothing. And so they had a lot of anxiety about like the anonymity of these advertisements and like, you don't, how could you just meet this person? You don't know who they are. And it makes me laugh every time I read about it because it just sounds like now it sounds like Tinder. (laughs) It is. I mean, we're, we're human. They, they had like cooler style maybe, but also like a trap. I mean, the things I love, videos that are being colorized now from that period because it just makes them a little more human, you know, to see their skin color and the color of their clothes. It it brings it more into the present and makes it more relatable. But also when I see their clothes, I think that looks cool, but it also looks like a trap. Like I do not even want to wear a bra, much less a corset (laughs) and like a whole, like all these layers and, you know, the men with their hats, they look awesome, but also do you really want to walk around with a bowler on your head all day? I don't know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I will take all their jewelry. Every piece of yeah. it. I want it all. That That is like my Etsy porn. I love to sit there <laughs> and look at Victorian <laughs> jewelry. It's fascinating. Do you have any interest in spiritualism or memento mori? And I asked because, hello, Halloween! <laughs> Exactly. I have been, I've been trying to, I went through a phase a couple of months ago where I was trying to figure out a way to fit seances into my dissertation and it was just not working, but because I really wanted to do more research about Victorian seances, I'm very interested. I'm very interested in general in ancestor work. And so, which I feel like 
and I'm very interested in looking at it through sort of a Victorianist lens. So partly in my own life, because I do so much archival work and I feel like in many respects, archival work for me has become a kind of like ancestor work in a way where I have like a, I don't know, a very strong connection sometimes to the people that I'm reading about. And a lot of the people I'm reading about in the newspapers are not terribly famous. They kind of just had like one bad day or committed one crime, you know, like Mm -hmm. 150 years ago. And I'm reading about them and about what happened to them, but like, they're not, they're not anyone, anyone would recognize. I just kind of pulled them randomly out of a newspaper. And so I'm very interested in ancestor work. And then I'm also very interested in sort of Victorian mourning practices and how they, again, it's not something I've had a lot of time to research because it's not really in my dissertation. And at this point I'm like, I just need to get that done. But I've been thinking about mourning practices a lot because of COVID. And there's been a lot of conversation, at least in the United States, I can't speak for other countries. There's been a lot of conversation about the fact that we have almost no kind of formal mourning practices in any way. And that our relationship to death it's kind of just weird. <laughs> so well, we're distanced from it. It's sanitized yeah. and removed. So then we're sort of isolated in our grief and there's no way to process it. it. Besides that funeral that your cousin shows up to and people bring you lasagna and that's about it. Now get over it and get back to your life. Yeah, exactly. And so I feel like the Victorians, you know, because they were so because they had formal mourning periods and because again, the mourning periods are a little bit class-based because if you were really, really poor and worked in a factory, I don't know how you would have gone about kind of recognizing a lot of the mourning periods that the middle class and upper class could. But when you think about like the mourning periods and, and the memento mores and the post-mortem, post-mortem photography really took off in the Victorian era and, and keeping locks of people's hair and then seances and spiritualism I think they were much more oriented towards death than we were for, we are for a lot of different reasons. And I think they had much more of a sense than we do now of like the presence of people who have left. And they had, they, they really wanted to find evidence that they could talk to people from beyond the grave. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you, you will, you may, you may or may not know Arthur Conan Doyle who wrote Sherlock Holmes. One of like the funniest things about him when people talk about him is he wrote, you know, Sherlock Holmes, who's just, the most factual scientific character pretty much ever to exist. But then Arthur Conan Doyle was obsessed with fairy photography and seances. Mm. So he authored a lot of books about seances and fairies and the fairy realm. And, and it's always really funny because it's just such a weird counterpoint to a Sherlock Holmes books. But I think it really was a part of the culture. I don't think it was as yeah. separated out as like the woo community is now. Yeah. I think it was just really just a part of life back then. That's yeah. probably a product of living with death as a part of life and not separating it out from the culture. Of course you would want to t- talk to your dead loved ones. Of course, of course yeah. you would. I don't really understand the post-mortem photography that always really freaks me out. And I do my best to avoid it on Pinterest, yeah. but yeah. I do totally get the hair thing. I love the, yeah. like the braided hair that is, embedded into a ring you know under the glass or a locket I'm I'm a hair person when my cat Otis died I was like gather all the hair I've done it for every cat I I don't know why there's just something about it like his energy is here this is like a piece of him that I can keep 
Yeah. Yes, I... Oop, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Memento Mori did not start with the Victorians, but they sure made a thing of it. And I love it. It's actually part of my spiritual practice. Just to be mindful of death, like this too shall pass. You have limited time. And the more aware you are of that, the more you can optimize this day and love the people you love and not fall into traps of resentment and all of that stuff. But it was part of their post-mortem photography and a lot of their jewelry. Is that something that you've spent very much time exploring? Not a lot of time. I think, I think with respect to, again, I haven't done a lot of research into postmortem photography. I, I think there's a new TV show actually out about a postmortem photographer, which I've been meaning to watch, but I have a very long list. I think with postmortem, I think, I think what's interesting about death for the Victorians, first of all, right now, death temporally is like, you know, most of us live very long, like the average lifespan is I think late seventies for the United States. And so we don't have, you know, our lives are in a way death is kind of for a lot of people, it's like temporally kind of cordoned off. It's like something you don't think about or deal with until you get to then. And obviously infant mortality, child mortality was just incredibly common in the Victorian era. And so they didn't, you know, their lives people were constantly dying, you know, just because your family was mostly young, you had a young family didn't mean that like, you know, nobody was going to, you know, that you could expect that everyone was going to make it to 75. But then I think besides that, what's really interesting is I think we take for granted when someone dies now, how many photos we have of them and a lot of times home video we have of them. And we have so many ways to kind of remember them and to see them in a way that I don't think we have the same urge to like cultivate, you know, to save a lock of hair, to take one last photo, you know, because we just sort of take for granted, like at my grandfather's funeral, we had photos of him pretty much for, uh, you know, his whole life after the age of 25, pretty much. That's and, a good point. That's that yeah. that is the the point I think is they didn't have yeah. photographs back then, not very many, and if they did, they were probably very very rich or it was like yeah. a super special thing that, you know, yeah, happened once in a not even a blue moon. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that makes sense. We should talk about your other interests too. Because yes. you have many, and I'm, I'm what I'm really curious about is, is this all going to come together at some point? Are you, do you have a vision in mind? Like, ooh, I'm going to write gothic novels or historical novels or something like that. Because you're a writer, you're really into role-playing games and yep. world building. I, I do see the link to all these things. In your mind, is there an end point or something you're getting to? I think I'm still figuring that out in many respects. What's interesting about kind of you talking to me now is that I've just recently in the last year sort of started combining all of these interests up until the past year. I always felt like I had to like separate my academic persona from what I was interested in on the witchy side. And then that wasn't really the same as the artistic or writing side. And they all had to be totally different. And I think I just felt, I think it was like pressure mostly like coming from me, but that I was putting on myself as, like a member of a lot of different communities, I was like, well, I don't want to weird out my grad school friends talking about, 
I don't know, like Drawloween or Dungeons and Dragons or witchcraft or something. And so I'm kind of just reaching the point where I've given myself the freedom to just be like, look, you know, I mean, everything's kind of in chaos anyway. There's a pandemic. Weird stuff is happening all over the place. Like you should really just feel free to be all the things you want to be at once because like it's really not hurting anyone and probably nobody cares because there's a pandemic on. So Mm -hmm. like, but I would definitely say I want to do Victorian historical fiction. Um, I think I feel a lot of pressure to do the research, like do really, really thorough research. And it would be kind of different research from what I'm doing right now. So I'm, I think that's much further down the road for sure. And I do want to do, once this dissertation is done, if it's ever done, I want to actually look more at uh, Victorian spiritualism and seances because I've really developed, and also their relationship, like their interest in fairies, the fairy realm, because I think that's like really just fascinating. And I love Victorian fairy art. So, so I want to do more research about that. I don't know if that would be like a research book or a a fun book, but uh, like a, sorry, what's the word? Fiction. Yeah. (laughs) Fiction or research, but I'm still deciding. I'm doing NaNoWriMo with it next month, actually. That's the plan anyway. I mean, I'm going to see, it's kind of hard for me to imagine what November will be like, but I want to do NaNoWriMo and I'm actually, it's going to be set in the Vampire the Masquerade universe. So, which is like a tabletop role-playing game universe. And I've always wanted to write a novel set in write a manuscript set in kind of one of these collaboratively built universes that has a lot of different people writing for it. And I don't have any like plans for it, except I want to get back into writing fiction. And I love Vampire the Masquerade right now. I'm just really fascinated by it. So, so, so I do want to, I think I kind of, I think, I feel like everything ends up in my writing kind of one way or the other. (laughs) So would that be considered fan fiction you know, it's for my purposes, I'm just because I wrote fan fiction a lot as a teenager. I was very into fan fiction. And I actually did a project at, in, in grad school. We did a project on looking at like Harry Potter fan fiction. We like hundreds of thousands of Harry Potter fan fictions. And we were just running different kinds of analysis on them, looking for like patterns in plots and things like that. So that was something else that I did. I would probably call it fan fiction. I mean, technically, because it's like a collaborative universe, which a lot of like role-playing game universes are, you know, they do license people to like write novels in the genre, but that's not really what I'm looking to do. I just wanted to take some of the world building pressure off myself because I'm doing world building right now, like very intensively for like a personal project that is my own fantasy. And it's like, it's my personal world building project. I don't know. Sometimes I think I world build just for the fun of world building without any intention of like ever getting to the end of it. And that's kind of what this world building project has been like the long one that I've been working on. I've just been working on it forever. Uh, But I do want to actually start writing that story, book, novel series soon. And so I thought I want to do NaNoWriMo, but that other universe isn't ready. And so I'll pick a universe that's kind of already fleshed out and that I really love. And I'll just try to make NaNoWriMo happen this year. So So I only know Dungeons and Dragons as this thing that people do. Like I have a pop culture awareness of what it is, but I know nothing about vampire masquerades. So can you tell us a little bit about what that is? Sure. I'm relatively new to it myself, but it's essentially, it's a totally different kind of tabletop role-playing game. So it's not using the Dungeons and Dragons system. And it's 
set in basically a much darker version or uh, they kind of made the point in this most recent book that actually it doesn't have to be that much darker because there's a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of bad things going on at the moment, but it's, it's sort of in a darker version of our day that includes our modern day that includes a lot of the same problems and includes the same places like Chicago, New York city, you know, but also includes the existence of these like secret vampires basically who, participate in something called the masquerade, which is the way that they keep themselves masked from humanity. And I think what I find fascinating about all different kinds of role-playing games is really just, I feel like it's another kind of, I feel like world building in many respects, it, it feels very magical to me. A lot of times it's one of those moments. I think anyone who's like very into the witchy side of things, you have moments where you see people doing things and like, they don't necessarily consider it magical or witchy. It's like just a hobby, but you're like, <laughs> this is so, this is like such a magical thing. Oh, a hundred percent. And I feel like that with tabletop role-playing and world building a lot of times where it's like, you're creating a universe. You have a whole new paradigm that you've made, you know, like when you're writing fantasy, you come up with a fantasy system, you come up with a magic system for your universe in a way. But that's sort of also what we do a lot of times in kind of like alternative spiritualities. We're like coming up with a system that works for us, that makes sense for us. You know, we're, we're sort of, you know, we're kind of rejecting maybe some of what we were told as kids or the society that we were born into. And we're sort of constructing constructing something that makes more sense to us given who we are. And that's like exactly what you're doing in world building when you're world building for a fantasy novel or for like a a tabletop role playing game. You're just sort of, you're like, let's start over from scratch. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yes. And I, I mean, there are layers to the magic too, because if you get into a state of believing and you're acting out a character, that is extremely witchy it's group storytelling. I think humans are magical and witches, occultists, we just recognize that, embrace it and do it on purpose kind of thing. Yes. <laughs> That's kind of my take on it, but especially creative people. And I think we all start out that way. Like part of our developmental process is creativity. It's pretend it's play. It's trying on these different roles. And then people, they grow up and they grow out of it. And I just think that's a tragedy. Yeah. Yeah. I I really enjoy nerds. And I say it with (laughs) maximum affection because we are people that are just, we're just not going to let it go. Yeah. We're not going to let it go. You have so many different interests. You also studied anthropology, which somehow in my mind makes sense as well. Like what was that about? (laughs) So I, when I started university um, as an undergraduate, what I wanted to be like the, the thing that I wanted to be was I wanted to be a classical archaeologist. So I wanted to be an archaeologist working on Greece and Rome, which does make sense because now that I'm, you know, where I am in life, I'm very focused on the Greek gods and I think about them a lot. And so, Mm -hmm. but I wanted to, I wanted to be a classical archaeologist. I wanted to work on the archaeology of ancient Greece. And I ended up changing my mind several times in no small part. I was supposed to take Latin and ancient Greek and I uh, got part of the way through Latin and I was like, I do not have the energy to do ancient Greek as well. And then I was also kind of broadening my interests a little bit. And so I was like, I don't know if I want to specifically be a classical archeologist. So 
I ended up majoring in anthropology. My official focus was in archaeology, just kind of archaeology in general, not classical archaeology specifically. But then I also, right at the end, was taking, my official focus was archaeology, but I really could have, uh, I could have chosen for that focus to show up as either physical anthropology or archaeology because I was taking like a lot of, um, I was taking a lot of human origin and evolution primate classes, that kind of thing. But the archaeology, I think you can tell it just comes out because I love archives so much. And I'm just really fascinated by like the material remains that are left down to us when people are gone. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was one of those kids, if we went to a museum or something, this is why, I mean, this is why I decided I wanted to be an archaeologist. You know, if I went to a museum and I saw something and it was, you know, 400 years old, like a book that's 400 years old, you know, I could just sit there for like 15, 20 minutes and just think about like, well, who's the last person that touched it? You know, and I mean, probably now the museum curator actually, but (laughs) I would think about like who made it, who read it, who did it originally belong to? Like what stories does it have? I think that's like another way in a lot of times to any kind of world building or narrative or stories for me is just like, what are the objects and like, what have they seen and what have they lived through? And again, just like with the Victorians and the lock of hair, you know, sometimes like when people are gone, we have things, you know, we have these things to remind us of them. You know, we have memories and if you're doing ancestral work or seances or something like that, you have that. But a lot of times we have things, we have like hairbrushes and jewelry and photographs. And so I loved majoring in archaeology. I really did. I ended up going into literature, but I feel like in many respects, I'm just doing a kind of literary archaeology now a lot of times with the newspapers. I'm just digging through it, looking for random things and advertisements from like 250 years ago. Yeah. You know what? And who knows? Maybe one of your lead characters will be an archaeologist. I've thought of that a lot about I thought a lot about writing about an archaeologist. So, <laughs> and, and wait, your your dissertation isn't it on Victorian? Is it is this just an interest of yours? Or are you writing this for for your graduate degree? Isn't it involving Victorian crime fiction? Yes. Okay. Yes. So, isn't archaeology like mysteries? It's like solving mysteries. To me, these things are very related. It really is. It's definitely, I mean, some of the most interesting reading I'm, I'm about to do because I'm about, I'm leaving behind my sensation novel chapter and I'm about to work on my Gothic chapter. And I'll be learning a lot about like the, the beginning of forensics, basically. So the beginning of Victorian forensics and crime reporting. And, and obviously the Victorians were like to a fault, like obsessive archaeologists. They were really just kind of plundering whatever countries they they felt and like we and it was still not are. a good scene. we still are i mean we literally are yeah. people yell about this on twitter all of the time like why yeah, are you it's, desecrating these graves it's uh, and i think that's one of the things in a way that made me feel better about going into literature is i can like dig through the archives digitally now without take physically taking someone else's heritage anywhere mm. <laughs> you know i'm yes. just kind of peeking so because archaeology, like I, I love reading about it so much, but it is like ethically complicated in ways that do at times, like even as an undergrad, when I was probably not most aware of a lot of these issues, I definitely had moments where I was like, I don't know if we should be doing that. I know. <laughs> well, it's like, like this weird, idea. it's, I feel very conflicted because I'm like, yes, I want to see inside that Egyptian tomb. And this feels very, very wrong. Maybe we shouldn't be digging up dead people, especially people who put so much effort into 
protecting themselves and making sure that their spirits got on to the next thing, you know, like, yeah. it's so odd. I wonder like, what is the cutoff for that being acceptable? <laughs> like how many years can pass before it's okay to desecrate a grave? Maybe never. Yeah. No, I think that's something also that like thinking more about ancestor work and spiritual work and just like, I think about time a lot and kind of time through like kind of a magical or witchy lens. Like how is it different when you have like a different relationship to the past in certain ways, or you have a different understanding of how the world works. And so I feel like as an undergrad, you know, I was pretty young and I was like, well, look, if it was hundreds and hundreds of years ago, it's not the same as like forensic anthropology. Their relatives aren't alive now. Their grandkids aren't alive now. Their great grandkids aren't alive now. Like enough distance has passed. And now I think because I'm older and because I've just read more about it and thought more about it. And then also because, you know, I think sometimes if you're pursuing kind of a witchy path or you're doing a lot of these kinds of things, time collapses in a way. Like you don't think about the ancestors, you know, whoever, whatever that means to you, like in the same way, you don't necessarily think about people who have gone before in the same way. You kind of sit there and you're like, well, why is 500 years the cutoff? <laughs> like, no, what does that even mean? That's so arbitrary. Like, why is someone 2,000 years, like, who died 2,000 years ago, why is that any different from someone who died 20 years ago? Like, this is really just arbitrary, like, human nonsense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know what? Also, I'm, I'm totally going to interrupt this line of thought because I have to make a recommendation, if not for you, if for the people listening, because I just finished season two of The Alienist. I read the book, oh, The no. Alienist, when it came out a million years ago. And and then I watched the first season on TNT. And then oh, I changed cool. my cable package, no longer had TNT. <laughs> the second season came out. And I was like, take my money. I just bought the second season. And I feel like you would absolutely love it. Speaking of now you're getting into studying forensics. That's like the next chapter. Yeah. Have you seen No, it? that's... I have not seen it. It's one of those things that's been on my list for a while. And so I'm glad to hear you recommend it. I haven't had anyone in my day-to-day life who's seen it, who's talked to me. I tend to get dragged into shows when someone I know (laughs) is like, you have to see this, won't talk to you anymore. And then I'm like, okay, well, I had 10 on my list. So that one goes to the top. (laughs) Oh, it was made made for you uh, and me, I will say. It's, the acting is exquisite, but the set pieces... And just just knowing what your interests are, you will 100% love it for sure. I'll definitely, I'll bump it to the top of the list and this is how I make all my decisions, so. (laughs) It's very exciting. It's very exciting. So, I mean, there is a thread of death in your work. It's so interesting to me that, why? (laughs) Why? (laughs) You're a Texas girl. When I think Texas, I think bright, shiny, big, like, not death, not Victorian. I, although I'm certain that there is death in Victorians in Texas. It's just a stereotype <laughs> that I have. Like, what brought you to this point, Steele? I, you know, I, I honestly, it's, it's hard to say. I think, I think it's just something that was there from a really young age. I did. My mom read me the Greek myths at a really young age, and I remember especially. I, I actually was writing a blog post recently because I want to start a blog about Persephone. And I remember like some of these myths, especially Persephone, the myth of Persephone, just being a really big deal to me when I was really young. And I think if it comes from anywhere, it's got to come from there because I can't say that I had a childhood that would have made you think about death a lot. 
you know, I didn't have any major losses in my childhood. We lived on a farm for part of the time. So there was actually, I guess, a lot of, not like a working farm, like a hobby farm kind of thing. But, um, oh my gosh, I guess there were a lot of animals dying. I was, yeah, I was. (laughs) Right. Okay. I remember that. Yeah, I was. No, it was, it was, um, yeah. So I, I had like, in many respects from death, I had a pretty sheltered childhood apart from, you know, having a lot of animals and obviously they have different lifespans. So they pass, but so I think it's just something I either got it from reading a lot at a young age and exposure to mythology from a really young age. I wasn't raised in a religious family. I was raised in a very atheist family. And so I was kind of read the myths a lot and then like, didn't have any other, like nobody, there was no a kind of other religious framework or anything like that, which was great for me. But I think I definitely at a really young age, like attached a lot of significance to the myths that I was reading. So it makes sense that like, they're still with me now. <laughs> well, what do your parents think of you that they are atheists and you gravitated toward the occult and spirituality? I, I think- I'm really lucky. Like my family is generally like, I think their philosophy is like, like as long as I'm not hurt and I'm not hurting anyone, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it's pretty, I get like some raised eyebrows sometimes from different family members, but like, I feel like it's usually pretty deserved, honestly. <laughs> so um, I'm like, I, I feel like that's fair. I feel like raised eyebrows are fair. So I'm willing to accept those. Uh, but for the most part, you know, I still maintain like uh, what I've absolutely held on to from like my atheist upbringing is I feel very strongly that when humans have like major group projects, governments, social systems, education, that that I believe needs to be a very firmly like atheist agnostic, you know, I feel very strongly in kind of spiritual autonomy and that people can sort of like, I feel like people should take every opportunity to kind of construct a worldview that makes sense for them. And they should feel very free to do that. But then I also like feel very strongly that they need to not be forcing it on anyone else. And so I think that also helps. I think if I were trying to convert everyone, there would be a big problem in the family. Oh, I've (laughs) met met atheist people who are like, Cross the what is the word proselytizing? They're atheists. Uh, uh, They're like want to convince you that this is the truth and the way. And I always just that makes me laugh inside <laughs> because yeah, it's just kind of ironic and funny. Yeah, yeah. I think it's just really important as humans kind of dropped on this earth, you know, that we have sort of the autonomy to again come up with a worldview that just makes sense for us and to believe what makes sense for us. Obviously, again, when it comes to like major government projects and things like that, we need to kind of, you know, pull back and let people do what they want to do. And, um, you know, I don't think it should infiltrate social systems. But otherwise, I think it's so important. Like you don't get to dictate to other people. It works for them and it makes sense for them. And it's been a powerful force in their life. Like, don't don't start. (laughs) Right. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's complicated because I grew up in let's call it extreme Christianity. And when you are yeah. so thoroughly convinced that your way is the right way and it is your job, yeah. your mission, your purpose as a Christian to save as many people as you can, <laughs> it's very yeah. complicated because they're not seeing it that. They're trying to help you, yeah. steal. They're trying to help you not burn in hell forever. <laughs> so. <laughs> It's yeah. really important that we have laws that protect our spiritual sovereignty because yes. it's, whew, you don't, you don't want to go yeah. down that road. We already have, and it doesn't end well. Exactly. 
Yeah. Okay, yeah, so exactly. I have a really important question. Okay. <laughs> Delilah, can we talk about oh. this foof? <laughs> we absolutely can. In fact, she just left the room, but she was here until a minute ago. So Delilah is <laughs> the true star of everything. In fact, it's really good that I finally gotten on Twitter because for years I was just on my private Facebook and it was just bombarding all relatives and, and friends with photos of Delilah. It was just the only channel playing on my Facebook ever. So who, who is she? Delilah who the world. is who is this little soul? So Delilah is my 17-year-old tortoiseshell cat. <laughs> um, and she's we've had her, we've had her since she was probably like nine or ten months old. So we've had her almost her whole life. We just found her. Um, we were, it was right before my family moved to Texas. So I was like nine or 10 years old and we came to Texas to visit and we were staying in like an RV park, basically camping. And Delilah, we first found her. She was like, she was very, she was like very sad. She was like sitting in the rain. She was by herself. No one knew she wasn't microchipped. She hadn't been eating very much. It was clear. And so we just sort of, my family is like, we always take in animals. Like they always end up with. <laughs> so, so she was like, probably we had four cats at that point. We already had like four or five cats. We just took her back at the time we were in Pennsylvania. And so that was right before we moved to Texas. And so we just took her back to Pennsylvania with us. And then when we came back to Texas, she came with us. So she's the only Texas native in the family. She's a foofy, poofy girl. I would say she's black. She's black with tortoise shell accents that give her a very witchy look. Exactly. She has, well, she's, yeah, she's black with a little bit of orange. So she's very Halloweeny. And then she has like a checkerboard mouth, which I consider her best feature because mm-hmm. she has like, <laughs> she has like little orange squares on her mouth. It's really cute. She's poofy, like a rag doll or a Maine she Coon. She is poofy. She is poofy. She's got like, she's got the fur of a Maine Coon. And then also she was, she's like part Manx. So Manx cats don't have tails. And she's like part Manx, so she's got basically a pom-pom for a tail. Aww. She's got like this puffy. You can't tell a lot of times in the photos, but it's like the first thing people notice when they meet her. So basically her body is like a puffy little tortoiseshell puff. And then she has like a smaller puff that's her tail. Well, I definitely think people should follow you on Twitter and YouTube, and I will link to those things. But this really was just for the fun of it, this conversation today. So I feel free to hop around, and I want to hop around one more time before we wrap okay. up, if you don't mind. You sure. said something in passing. It just went by really fast, but my brain was like, what? And it was about bigamy being a, a common feature in Victorian fiction maybe it was about even victorian crime fiction what the heck is that about okay so this is a specific i work on sensation fiction which is really big one of this chapter is on sensation fiction which was really big in the 1860s and something really bizarre that happened that sort of basically laws were passed in victorian england around that time that made it easier for poor people to obtain divorces so until then divorce was something that was very much kind of a luxury of the the wealthy um and so a law was passed to make divorces more accessible which was a very good thing like speaking speaking from my perspective and generally it was a really good thing it because it had been you know, really hard to get a divorce until then, even in really bad situations. So it made it more accessible. But there were a lot of kind of pearl clutchers at the time who were like, 
they had a lot of anxiety about like, oh my God, so then you can just get married seven times, right? And then this kind of anxiety boiled over into this massive fixation on bigamy. So there was like, the, there, there was just this massive outpouring of stories in the 1860s that were all like, man or woman marries this person who seems really innocent, it seems perfect, and then they find out that like the marriage isn't valid because they were already married. And it's really funny. It's a really interesting example of how like anxiety doesn't always make sense because like making divorce more accessible gave people like fewer reasons to like be married to two people at the same time because mm. they could divorce the four first one and then remarry. But <laughs> so there should have, there was in fact less bigamy because people could get divorced. Whereas before then, if you couldn't get a divorce, you just like left town in the dead of night, reinvented yourself somewhere else and then married someone who had no idea you were already married and just hoped that like no one found out. Yeah. Um, which was so much bigamy. easier to do before the internet. Exactly. Like it worked for a lot of people <laughs> for yeah. a long time. So there's all of this anxiety and one of the novels I'm working on, I mean, I won't spoil it in case anyone in the audience decides to read it, but one of the novels I'm working on is one of like the classic Lady Audley Speaker. It's one of the classic bigamy novels. And it's, it's really interesting for me. I'm working on it because people with secret identities, right. And one of the characters has a secret identity and that identity includes being married. <laughs> so already. So that's why I'm working on it. But yeah, it's just, it, it's a really interesting thing to look back on historically. Cause it was kind of an anxiety that didn't make a ton of sense rationally, but it really took hold of England for a while there. So mm. I just love the quirkiness of all of this. It's so, <laughs> so interesting. You are interesting. And I would definitely put you in the category of somebody creating the kick-ass life of their dreams because this is all so specific. This is not yeah. like a career path that, you know, is laid out before you. It's something that you create as you go. And even just hearing you talk about your story of like, well, it was like anthropology with a focus on archaeology and then it was literature. And now you're writing about like second and secret and dual identities and Victorian fiction. It's just so <laughs> you and so specific. So my question then is to other people who dream of creating a life of their own in this way, like what is one tip that you have for creating the kick-ass life of your dreams? Emphasis on the creating as an ongoing process. I think maybe this is like a very specific thing that I've been working through a lot in the past year. So myself, so it's kind of like, it's, it's not like a more general, like be yourself kind of thing. But one thing I've found is that I, I feel like I'm getting better about this, but early on I would get very, I would assume that just because someone cared about me and wanted the best for me and was very smart and sort of was doing very well in their own life that I should uncritically take their advice. And one of the things I've learned as I've been, you know, just growing a little bit and sort of developing more as who I want to be is that just because someone absolutely from the bottom of their heart does want the best for you. And even though maybe they're doing really well in their own life, you know, they, a lot of times they're giving advice, assuming that you kind of want to follow in their path or you want to be more like them, or they're giving advice they wish they'd gotten 20 years ago or advice to help you sort of follow in their path. And I feel like I got a little confused kind of earlier, earlier in my career where I would feel like, but they're so happy and they're doing so well and they want the best for me. So obviously like this advice must be good advice. And it's like, it can be good advice for some people and like bad advice for you Yeah, and you don't want to follow it. 
So I feel like I've just gotten better at, I've never been someone who would like take advice from frenemies or something like that, but I think I'm getting better at also just acknowledging that advice can be good without being good for me and like valuing it, appreciating it, but ultimately just, you know, saying like, it doesn't really have relevance to my life at this time, (laughs) you know, follow your own star. It does not diminish the light of another star, but that's their light. You have your own, follow your own star, your own inner guidance, which I think you do a beautiful job of. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. It was really fun. Do you want to tell people just really quick how they can find you on Instagram or excuse me, on Twitter, on Twitter and YouTube? Absolutely. So on Twitter, Twitter and Instagram, I have the same handle. It's Steele, S-T-E-E-L-E. It's spelled differently. S-T-E-E-L-E, Arcana, Arcana, A-R-C-A-N-A. So that's my handle on Instagram and Twitter. And then on YouTube, I'm just using my first and middle name, Steele Alexandra. So, and there's links to that in my Twitter bio and everything like that. So yeah. And thanks so much for having me on, Joanna. It was really, it was really, really cool. Yeah. It's really cool to get to do this. Whoop, whoop. I hope you loved that. I loved it. I thought that was fun. Happy Witches New Year. May you have a lovely trip down into the underworld. Happy Halloween and a blessed Samhain. Until we meet again, much love to you. Peace.